Welcome to the Spark Youth Podcast. Spark is the youth ministry of the Enfield and Strathfield Anglican Church. Our mission is to gather to hear God's word, to grow in Christ's likeness, and to go in prayerful proclamation. To find out more about us, you can go to our website at fields.org.au forward slash spark, or you can find us on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash youth underscore of underscore spark. Well, today our popular catchphrase is, it's true for you, but not for me. You've probably heard it before. It's often a response given by people who disagree with what someone else believes. The idea is that it really doesn't matter what your friend's um, beliefs are, as long as you are sincere in those beliefs. Now, this way of thinking is commonly called relativism. Relativism is a belief that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture and are not absolute. In other words, only I can determine right and wrong for me, truth for me. Let's quickly consider some objections. Thank you. Is, is being sincere in your beliefs enough? Some examples should help. Very few people believe that the Holocaust was a good thing, but Hitler was very sincere in what he was doing. No one defends bride burning in India or the daily human sacrifices carried out by the Aztecs. If tomorrow I believe I'm a heart surgeon, would you allow me to operate you or anyone you know? Even if I believed I could do it with all the passion of a real surgeon, I would not be able to join a hospital team. We simply do not consistently hold to the claim that people can believe whatever they want if they are sincere. All by itself, being sincere isn't enough. Why? Because there is such a thing as truth, which leads to the second question. Can we live without truth? Someone may say there is no truth, but when they travel calmly at 30,000 feet on a plane in the air, it's the unchangeable truth of aerodynamics that is keeping them in the air. We simply cannot live in this world without truth. Consider these statements. All truth is relative. Is that statement a relative truth? There are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? It's true for you, but not for me. Is that statement true just for you or is it true for everyone? Why should I believe your truth claim if you say there is no absolute truth? Furthermore, all of us believe some things are wrong regardless of the culture. Random murder killing is wrong regardless of how you feel. Rape is wrong regardless of what culture you're from. Cowardice is viewed as dishonorable no matter where you live. What about human rights? If you believe in human rights, regardless of what the rest of your community and culture says, do you believe that? What gives us the right to have absolute standards like human rights and impose these values on others if we say all our beliefs are just relative? If you're still unsure, let me share a story with you. A woman who believes in relativism was working in West Africa when she challenged the mainstream mistreatment of women in traditional African society, she was told by tribal leaders that she has no right to impose her Western worldview on them. It was in line, um, it, it was a, a line of argument perfectly in tune with her own relativistic views. If there is no right and wrong, then there is only the strong and the weak. Who was she to challenge the oppression of the weak by the strong? 
she found herself forced to choose. Five chapters in one day. Sorry, guys. If you um, can you put yourself on mute if you're um, not on mute, that would be great because a bit of background noise. Um, she found herself forced to choose between her relativism and her view of equal human rights for all. If there is no truth, then there is no base, base, basis to say the mistreatment of women is right or wrong. But she chose human rights. Would you have done the same? If you believe human rights are a reality, then it makes more sense that God exists than he does not. For we can only have human rights if we're all made in the image of God. Otherwise, it's just a cultural opinion. Let's turn to the question of God now. Can we test the claim that God exists? Sometimes what underlies the argument about God isn't really, we don't really know, but I don't care. It's a refusal to engage thoughtfully with facts and ideas that make people feel uncomfortable. This belief may seem very tolerant, but it's really making a truth claim, a faith claim that all religions are really wrong and claiming superiority over them. There are fundamental differences between each of the major religions that need to be evaluated. For example, Islam says that Jesus was not crucified. Christianity says he was. Only one of us can be right. Judaism says Jesus was not the Messiah. Christianity says he was. Only one of us can be right. Hinduism says that God has often been born into the world. Christianity said God was born into the world only once in Jesus. We cannot both be right. Buddhism says the world's miseries will end when we do what is right. Christianity says we cannot do what is right. The world's miseries will end when Jesus returns. We cannot both be right. Only one religion can be correct. So how do we know and how do we work out which one is correct or whether they're all wrong? Many people today think that beliefs are about God are just opinions. An important way to tell the difference between truth and opinion is that truth is generally testable. The only way to know if something is true is if you can test it and prove that it's true. You can work out the heights of all the mountains in the world and prove that Everest is the highest. It's scientifically testable. You can see the TV footage of the Olympics in Japan or even talk to people who were there and find out what happened. Many people think God can't pass the truth test. And this is true for almost all religions. In Islam, Muhammad said he had a private revelation with an angel, Gabriel, which told him to write the Quran. But no one else was there to test his claim. In Hinduism, they claim we are reincarnated from a past life. But we can't test this claim either. In Buddhism, they claim some people reach enlightenment. But how can you test someone's subjective experience? In Mormonism, Joseph Smith claimed that he received special private revelation through his hat but no one else saw, saw this to test his claim. The key difference between Christianity and all these religions is that Jesus's miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension up to heaven were all public events recorded by other people who were there. Listen to how John begins one of his letters. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John 1, 1. John is saying that in Jesus, God's son who has always existed became a human who lived, walked and talked. 
People could meet him and test him and find out what he's like. In other words, the, the claim of Jesus in the Bible can't just be an opinion. So does Jesus really pass the truth test? Does Jesus really pass the truth test? We have four separate gospel accounts written by four different eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about Jesus. Can we trust the eyewitness accounts? Well, let's have a look. Firstly, let's have a look at the reliability of the eyewitnesses. Let me teach you how to date the books of the Bible. You ready? Acts was written by Luke as his follow-up to his first book called Luke's Gospel. Acts ends apparently unfinished. The Apostle Paul, the central figure of the book, is under house arrest in Rome. He wasn't dead yet. Paul was put to death at around 62 AD. And this most, most likely is the cause of the halt in his teaching. That means Acts cannot be dated any later than 62 AD. Having established that, that's 30, less than 30 years after Jesus died, we can move backward from there. Since Acts is the second of a two-part work, we know the first part, part, the Gospel of Luke, must have been written earlier than that. And since Luke incorporates parts of the Gospel of Mark, that means Mark must have been written even earlier. And if you allow at least a year between each of these books, you end up with Mark written no later than 60 AD, but even as early as the anywhere in the 50s. Now, if Jesus was put to death 30 or 33 AD, we're talking about a maximum gap of 30 years or so, even less, 20 years. And the Gospels were written after almost all of the letters of Paul, whose writing ministry probably, probably began in the late 40s. We're talking 10 years after Jesus died. Most of his major letters um, appeared by the 50s. So we're talking about a gap of 10 to 20 years for the writings of Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection. And here is a summary of what we see in the Gospels in one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There were 500 people who saw the resurrection along with the disciples. In other words, it couldn't have, have been a lie because the lie wouldn't have gotten any momentum. How could Christianity have spread from the same town where these people all 500 of them were walking around and where the empty tomb lay. You would just ask around for one of the 500 people who were testifying to the event happening. Furthermore, who would die for a lie? All of the disciples were killed for their beliefs that Jesus was God and that he rose again. Uh, one professor of philosophy, Lynn Gardner, said, 
Why would they die for what they knew to be a lie? A person might be deceived and die for a falsehood, but the apostles were in a position to know the facts about Jesus's resurrection and they still died for it. The site of Jesus's tomb was known to Christians and Jews alike. So if it was empty, it would have been impossible for a movement founded on the belief of a resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where the man had been publicly executed and buried. But were the disciples just biased is another question. Were they teaching what they wanted to teach? To answer this, let's look at the Apostle Paul. He is important to look at because he wrote roughly a third of the New Testament. If you disprove him, then you go a long way in disproving the Bible. Saul of Tarsus, his original name, perhaps was the strongest opponent of early Christianity. He was in charge of killing Christians because he hated them so much. His devotion to the Jewish law triggered his opposition to Jesus and the early church. In Galatians 1.13, he said, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And yet on his way to Damascus to persecute and jail Christians, Saul was converted to Christianity through his encounter with the person of Jesus. In a dramatic transformation, he became the Apostle Paul, the most energetic and influential spokesman of Christianity. Paul was tortured, imprisoned, and ultimately killed for the utter belief that it was Jesus who talked to him. Two Oxford-educated friends, author Gilbert West and statesman Lord George Lytton, were determined to destroy the basis of the Christian faith. But after looking at the evidence, they concluded, this was what they said, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. In other words, Paul converting to Christianity so quickly proves he's not biased, but it must be true. Okay, so the eyewitnesses are reliable, but how do we know, how do we know our records are reliable? So let's look at the reliability of the manuscripts. How many copies do we have of the following te texts? What are our earliest copies of these texts? Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, um, the history of the, uh, go back, go back, not yet. Um, and um, Aristotle's Poetics. Does anyone have a, want to have a guess? How many copies, how early? 500 years after. 500, okay. Anyone else? Okay, I'll um, leave it to your imagination for the moment. And um, let's have a look. Let's have a look now. Alexander the Great died 323 BC. And the earliest sources of him began in 200 AD, 500 years after he lived. Historians considered the text of Alexander the Great as historically reliable. Aristotle wrote his poetics around 343 BC, and yet the earliest copy we have is dated 1100 AD, a gap of almost 1400 years and only five manuscripts exist. Julius Caesar composed his history of the Gallic Wars between 58 and 50 BC, and its manuscript authority rests on nine or 10 copies dating 1000 years after death. So Dr. Mertzger 
professor of biblical criticism and exegesis at the University of Manchester said, the quality of the New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison to these other works. There are 5,700 known copies of the New Testament in Greek, the original language, 10,000 in Latin and 14,000 in other languages. Within these manuscripts, there's only 1% variance between copies. And these copies are from 70 to 130 years after the originals. With over 1 million quotations, um, verifying the whole New Testament from very early church fathers. It's overwhelming how reliable the manuscripts are. Okay, but maybe the eyewitnesses believe that they, what they wanted to believe. Um, well, we've already covered that. Um, the third thing that we've, um, look, we want to look at is, brings me to the truth test three, the reliability of the Old Testament promises. The Old Testament was written over a period of 1,000 years by 50 people living at different times in different places. It contains more than 300 references to Christ's coming that he fulfilled. Using the science of probability, we find the chance of just 48 of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person to be one in 10 to the power of 157, which is like more atoms than in the universe. It's crazy. A few of these prophecies are, Jesus must come from the lineage of David from the clan of Judah, from the birthplace of Bethlehem. He must be born while the temple in Jerusalem, destroyed in 70 AD, was still standing, that Christ must be born from a virgin. Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, but not only that, by a friend and even more, specifically for 30 pieces of silver. And just to make it remove any doubt, the scripture also say that the money will be cast on the floor of the temple. A prophecy dating to 1012 BC also predicts that this man's hands and feet and side will be pierced and that he will be crucified. This description of the manner of his death was written 800 years before the Romans used crucifixion as a method of execution. Over the half of the prophecies were beyond Jesus' control. For example, the manner of his birth being born of a descendant from Abraham, the lineage of Shem, being betrayed by Junus and the betrayal price, the manner of his death, the people's reaction, the casting of dice for his clothes and the soldiers' hesitance to tear his garment. All of this came true in the person of Jesus, miraculously. Okay, so the prophecies point to Jesus. This means there are three options. He's either a liar a lord or a lunatic let's have a look at liar first if he knew he was not god he would he was deliberately lying to his followers more than that he was a hypocrite because he told others to be honest whatever the cost while he himself taught and lived a colossal lie more than that he was a demon because he told others to trust him for their eternal destiny last he would be a fool because it was his claim to to being God that led to his crucifixion. This view of Jesus, however, doesn't coincide with what we know either of him or the results of his life and his teaching. Wherever Jesus has been proclaimed, lives have been changed for good. Nations have changed for the better. Thieves have been made honest. Alcoholics have been cured. Hateful individuals become channels of love. Unjust persons become just. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus is a liar. Next, a lunatic. If it is inconceivable for Jesus to be a liar, then 
Couldn't he actually have thought himself to be God, but been mistaken? After all, it's possible to be both sincere and wrong. But we must remember that for someone to think himself God, then to tell others that their eternal destiny depended on believing in him would make him a lunatic. Was Jesus Christ such a person? He should have been locked up so he wouldn't hurt anyone else if he's that kind of person. Yet in Jesus, we don't observe the abnormalities and imbalance that usually go along with being deranged in their head. In light of the other things we know about Jesus, it's hard to imagine that he was mentally disturbed. Here is a man who spoke some of the most profound sayings ever recorded. His instructions have liberated many individuals from mental bondage. So it doesn't make sense that he is a lunatic, which means there's only one option left, that he's Lord. Let's consider the significance of this for your life. Jesus deals effectively with the most fundamental area of mankind's universal need to conquer death. The entire race is freed from death by Jesus' act through trusting in him by faith. And through his promise, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And again, he says, because I live, you, you shall live also. Jesus meets our most deepest need for meaning and hope. For Jesus alone brings us into relationship with God, where we find forgiveness, eternal life, and everything our soul has been searching for. So we don't need to wonder whether it's all an opinion. We can look to the Bible and see in Jesus the truth that our heart and our soul has been searching for, and we can have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we don't live in a, a world where everything is just left to opinion, but some things are certain. And the most certain thing we can know is that you have shown us your salvation in your son, Jesus, through whom we can have forgiveness, eternal life, hope, and peace. And I pray all of us will trust in Jesus today and that we will be able to share this good news with our friends. In Jesus' name, amen.